The following talk was given by Danica Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a senior monastic and serves as the training coordinator and creative director for the Mountains and Rivers Order. She is also a textile artist and oversees the Tenkos online of handmade items designed and crafted for the monastery store. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. You know how you can go to a restaurant and order like the sampler plate and you get like a scoop of maybe three or four delicious different things. I'm going to start you off with a little sampler plate. (laughs) The first morsel. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. The second morsel. A Raja of an East Indian country invited the 27th Buddhist ancestor Prajnatara to a feast. The Raja asked her, why don't you read scriptures? The ancestor said, this poor wayfarer doesn't dwell in the realms of the body or mind when breathing in, doesn't get involved in the myriad circumstances when breathing out. I always reiterate such a scripture, hundreds, thousands, millions of scrolls. The third morsel. When Dogen returned to Japan from China at a time where there was, I think, quite a bit of traveling uh, to China that was a uh, uh, bringing back the teachings, bringing back the Dharma to Japan, bringing back scriptures and I'm sure Buddha images and art, all kinds of things. When Dogen was asked, what did you bring back from China? He said, not much, except a soft and flexible mind. What is realization? What is this path? Where is it taking us? Each of these teachings is like a a pith instruction on practice and realization. The mind that has no preferences, not caught in grasping or aversion, soft and flexible, not getting caught in the inner realm or the outer realm, abiding nowhere. What's all the fuss? We all know people who are like really chill. Is this just about learning how to become really chill and relaxed?
Realization is taught as being an experience that we live out of. It's not an idea. And that becomes so um, kind of crystallized in Bodhidharma's um, bringing the Dharma, uh, the, the, the dhyana, the meditation school, to China and saying that, you know what? All those scriptures, all that studying, because Mahayana Buddhism had come to China and it came in you know, many sutras and many, many um, scholarly works and, and um, Buddhism in India had become very developed, complex in some ways, with multiple schools and different interpretations of different teachings of the Buddha because hundreds of years have passed, right, since, since the Buddha's own life. And um, Bodhidharma uh, said, you know what, this transmission, what I have to teach, this practice, this realization, is outside all of the scriptures. It's not about doctrine. It doesn't have any reliance on words and letters. It's an experience. It's a direct pointing. It's a direct pointing to the human mind. So realization is an experience that's arising out of a mind that is soft and flexible, easy and loose with preferences, seeing into their emptiness, that doesn't get entangled with this illusion of inner and outer. And I would like to um, offer a, a short parable from our own shared experience. I'll put myself in the center of this story, though, um, that uh, is simple enough that I think we can um, dig into the complexity of our experience, of our mind, um, which is so complex. I mean, you know, just think about how complicated you are. Yeah, seriously. So, okay. Um, some of you from home may also have noticed that recently we reset the Zendo. So for about a year, we've had the Zendo configured in one particular way. It kind of arose um, early in the pandemic when we were still trying to make efforts to um, distance. Ha. <laughs> But we had like space, you know, space between each sabaton and three rows spread out. Um, and it feels like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Things are shifting. It felt like, okay, it's time. Let's put the zendo back to how it's always been, which is, you know, rows kind of close together. So Hoku sent the zendo up. And um, I think that uh, a, a few of us were in the Buddha hall while it was happening. And um, so I came out and saw the reset Zendo, and I was like shocked and appalled. It looked terrible. The rows were so long and so tight and so close together, and it just felt so like rigid and kind of like dizzying. And I was like, oh my God, to myself, like, God, this is everything I hate about Zen. So I took a tool from my toolkit 
And um, with witness, although not actual hands-on support, but witness from a certain Hojin sensei, I went and I did like we do for wild grasses, where I just curved the ends of each row. <laughs> and by curve, it's just like a couple cushions sort of at a tilt. So you get a little bit of a rounded edge. And I thought, ah, OK, I feel some relief. Um, Later, that same evening, um, uh, Taikyo and I did a little bit more of an overhaul reset. We shortened the rows. We gave everybody a little bit more space. We sort of, perhaps you noticed, it was a little bit of a gentler feel, I thought, <laughs> by the time evening Zazen rolled around. Um, OK, so the curves on the rows didn't stay. <laughs> And when I saw that and heard how it had happened, I totally had a reaction. <laughs> I want you to know I'm totally over it. <laughs> I am. I am. I feel really good in this. So I'm telling you this story because it's simple enough, but it contains some really primal mind ingredients, OK? It definitely contains preferences. It contains reactivity, which is huge. And um, it contains, uh, I would say, some rigidity. And I'm claiming that for myself, OK? So um, <clears throat> so how can we understand how can we understand how to work with our mind? We're transforming our mind. Roshi spoke the other day about the Buddha taught to purify the mind. That's the teaching. Cease from evil, do all that is good, and purify the mind. That's like the Dharma in a nutshell. So what is this purifying? The mind. If we think about an impure mind, perhaps a good analogy, and this is not original to me, would be the sort of um, the, the, the muddy water, the stirred up muddy water. If you picture um, a beautiful mountain stream or river after a lot of rain where the silt gets churned up and the water is brown and murky. The water is itself still pure, but the agitation has stirred it up, and it now appears impure, muddy. You wouldn't want to drink it. But it can settle. The silt can settle. The water, the natural inherent purity of the water is um, never left for a moment. It was just obscured. And so in this way, we might think of our um, impure mind. It's a mind that's been stirred up. It's a mind of um, chronic agitation. It's uh, the Buddha spoke of I, me, mine, right? I, me, mine. This is like kind of at the, uh, at the, at the helm of most of our, maybe all of our stirring up. And um, 
Uh, the teachings also speak of this like agitation as kind of having three fundamental roots, the three poisons, greed, hatred or anger, and ignorance, delusion. So purifying the mind is going to be um, kind of purifying or healing or seeing through these three primary tendencies. And these are considered kind of the root kleshas. So klesha being an obscuration, an emotional affliction. There's so many varieties. Again, I invite you to look inside your own experience. But you can kind of distill them down. The basic energies are um, uh, this grasping, rejecting, and um, just like total misunderstanding, confusion, ignorance, etc. When we sit down in meditation, in fact, this is what we're confronted with. And I um, had an exchange with someone who's exploring the possibility of coming into residency. Um, this person's really brand new to practice. And so I had encouraged them to um, do some things online um, and get a taste. And um, I thought that I was being clear. I encouraged them to do beginning instruction on Sunday, da, 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 da. But what they did instead, and there's no problem here, is they did the whole Sunday morning program via live stream and did the two periods of zazen and kinhin and so on and so forth and wrote me back. And they were like, OK, so like, wow, that was a lot. And, um, and like, kind of I'm not sure if I'm ready. And really, like, you know, the part where we were sitting in meditation, I felt like I was like a crazy person. And I don't know if this is for me. I was just like, I was so like, I, I like wanted to like jump out of my skin. <laughs> and so I wrote them back and I was like, that's perfectly normal. <laughs> Everybody feels that way. Nothing's wrong with you. And actually, I think it would really help you to have beginning instruction first. So how about trying again in a couple of weeks? So we'll see, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, uh, yeah, they give it a second shot. In um, his commentary on uh, the Faith Mind poem, um, Mu Song, who is a former Zen monk in a Korean lineage and a Buddhist scholar, um, uh, he, he, he adds a line, a, a word to that first line. He adds the word addiction. So he says that he feels it's clearer to say the great way is not difficult for those who have no addiction to preferences. I thought that was very um, interesting because... Uh, and I understand Hogan spoke about these first couple of lines yesterday, um, so uh, I don't know exactly what he said, but um, but this—it's the—it's the how are we holding our preferences? How are we holding our preferences? Are we grasping at them? Are we addicted? Are we obsessed? Are they driving us? Because to have a preference is uh, maybe no big deal if we can hold it lightly and, and be clear about what's going on in that moment. You know, what is a preference? 
So Musong says, when Seng San is talking about love and hate being absent, he is really talking about the absence of all these psychological, emotional, and conceptual projections, and even about the absence of attachment to these projections. Our challenge is not to become attached to these projections. So not so much about love and hate, or rather perhaps to say to add nuance, love and hate are projections. So when I came into the Zendo and I felt aversion, right? I hate this. Where was that coming from? Where was that coming from? Somebody else, I promise you, could have walked into the Zendo and not had that reaction at all. So that reaction is arising in me. It's arising in me due to my own karma. The preference arises, I act out of it. And again, this is a relatively um, harmless example, but certainly we can each think of times when we have responded, maybe even you know, later realize we were responding out of a projection. It wasn't actually an um, intrinsic truth about the moment. And PS, there are no intrinsic truths. <laughs> but um, uh, it wasn't an intrinsic truth, even we're aware it was not, and we have caused harm. So it's really important to see this. Such a good spring breeze. It's all right. I can like just hold it down up here. Um, <laughs> okay. And I guess I'll also just say projection, we may be used to hearing that word in like therapeutic um, context. But in a Dharma context, in a Dharma context, we can understand projection as kind of the basic activity of the dualistic mind. It's the basic activity of delusion. So it's all a big, fat projection. <laughs> so. Um, how do we work with our projections? This is not a projection. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we have been studying the Yogacara teachings with the um, monastics and seniors. And I am not about to get into any deep, deep conversation about the Yogacara teachings, but I did um, want to sort of like, just like do a, a finger lick like that, okay? Because this concept of the storehouse consciousness, which is um, part of the, the teachings, is really, I think, super helpful. It can be super helpful. Um, so first of all, the uh, Zen, Zen student and author Ben Connolly 
um, who, who wrote a book on Yogacara from a practice perspective. He's a Zen, Zen practitioner. He translates, so Yogacara is often taught as um, the mind-only school. And he translates this as projection-only, the projection-only school, which is like really interesting, basically saying that like, um, according to these teachings, everything that we're experiencing is a projection. It's a projection of our mind. We're always seeing through a, um, a lens. And um, this, this is like, there's so much in this, and I feel like I don't understand it well enough to go into it in depth. But um, the piece that feels like it's really helpful is, is nicely summarized by this metaphor that he um, attributes to Asanga, who's one of the, the ancient sort of founding teachers of this school. Okay, so you have a, um, there's an idea of a storehouse consciousness, meaning um, a kind of layer of your consciousness, of your being, that is holding all of your karma, all of your karmic seeds is the description, all of your latent tendencies. So when I walk into the zendo and I have that reaction, that is um, arising from something, right? That's a projection that's arising out of my lived experience. It's unique to me. And I have seeds in my storehouse consciousness that are ripening in that moment to give me that kind of um, aversive response, right? Somebody else wouldn't have that reaction. And he, um, the metaphor is actually a metaphor about a lamp. So this is Asanga's metaphor. The other was, I mean, I guess the storehouse consciousness is also a metaphor and could also be attributed to Asanga and Vasubandhu, but really, this is the metaphor I was talking about. It's a lamp, okay? So picture one of these like old school lamps that has like um, kerosene and a wick and you light the wick. Got that in your mind? I'm picturing the one from the Abbasy that says Gethsemane on it. <laughs> I don't know where that is now. Anyway. Um, so the oil, the oil under the surface, out of sight, but completely integral to the functioning of this candle lamp is, um, is your alaya, your storehouse. Elia Vijnana is the full term, okay? Storehouse. The wick of the lamp is you, your body, your form, your being. The flame is your perception. So take that in for a second. I will also take it in and see if I um, want to say anything else to clarify that. So in other words, our life aliveness, our experience of being a person in the world, our um, burning sort of, uh, you know, flame, if you will, that's like relating and perceiving and having conversations and making friendships and 
rearranging the zendo, all of that is coming. It's drawing deep underneath. It's drawing deep underneath into our alaya. It's getting sucked up and it's just informing how I see and do everything. And I'm going to call that myself. But of course, this is Buddhism. There is no self. And so there are teachings, and that's part of what we've been studying and part of what's so challenging about how this is all dependently originating. And it's so, so subtle. So I, I don't want to get into that. But um, this idea that we are always responding from these um, subtle karmic forces that have shaped us. So back to the Zendo, right? I, um, I felt like this is patriarchy. These rows, they're so straight. We're so like locked in together. It's like, this is patriarchy. This is what I hate about Zen, okay? So that's all me drawing on. So what's in there? What's in there? Well, first of all, I'm born into a um, female body and I identify as female. I've gone through my life in a patriarchal culture as a woman, right? That's all day by day soaking into my alaya, right? I've trained in this monastery for a long time and um, uh, I have felt the um, ways that that patriarchy has shaped things here. And, um, and I've had my own experiences around that, right? And they, they correlate with certain things, maybe sights or sounds or feelings. So whoosh, they all, that's all getting triggered. And um, I think this is one of the really interesting things about understanding storehouse, storehouse consciousness or starting to work with it, rather. Um, we won't be so ambitious as to understand it, but starting to introduce it into how we understand ourselves is like that feeling of being triggered. It's coming from somewhere. It's coming from a lifetime of experiences, right? It's an authentic response. If you've ever been really triggered, you know you are at the mercy of like a force that is moving through you that you are not in control of, right? It's like feelings, thoughts, sensations, it's all like washing in and you are not in control of it. And how then can you purify this mind? Greed, hatred, delusion, whoosh, swirling in, conditioned, our storehouses conditioned by these very poisons. How can we purify? So the other day, I was chatting with Gokhan about um, the three poisons. <laughs> and I was like, so how, how do you, how do you what, what's the solution? Like, how do you transmute the three poisons? And he looked at me and he was like, 
mindfulness. And um, I was like, oh, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Mindfulness. Mindfulness. Um, what does this mean? What is mindfulness? Easy to say. A lifetime to clarify. So some ways to heal these poisons. Some approaches to mindfulness. One is to, um, which we do all the time in our zazen, is to work with uh, that, that kind of scattered, agitated energy and let it come into a place of rest. So often we speak about concentration. Concentration is learning how to let the mind rest. Good, stable, like healthy concentration is cultivated in a state of real relaxation. When we concentrate the mind, it's like all of that silt and mud and churn in the water right instead of like shaking it 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 which we can do for a lifetime we're going to just hold it still and the dust and the mud and the twigs and the rocks settle and we can experience some relief. It's very real. Perhaps you've tasted that yourself directly, seeing is it's Friday of Sashin. Another way is to, um, oh, I wanted to say, that kind of concentration and, and um, relaxation is uh, kind of meets its, its most um, complete manifestation, perhaps, in this soft and flexible mind that Dogen speaks of. Then there is a, um, an element where we can transform our storehouse consciousness, where we're actually going to um, take the greed and the anger and the hatred and let those release, let them heal, and 
um, cultivate like the paramitas, generosity, patience, loving kindness. In his, um, in his book, Ben Connolly does a beautiful job of making this very simple point of like, okay, you can't see what's going on in the oil chamber, but like you can know that if you do beneficial action, you're like cultivating a healthier storehouse. That, that oil is going to be purified. It will burn in a brighter, cleaner way. I think about um, the teachings on accumulating merit. I think this must be what they are, um, uh, well, at any rate, they, they seem clearly related, right? To accumulate merit, to do good, to take a service and devote the energy and um, intention behind it to the well-being of others, to start to cultivate in the mind a kind of generosity of spirit so that we're planting those seeds. We're planting those seeds, and as we go through our life and are um, responding to things, we're coming at it from a perspective that is um, influenced by positive qualities. And so, um, you know, with both of these, oh, the other, the other thing that I wanted to mention is insight. Actually having insight into the nature of things, insight into dependent origination, to give it a word, or emptiness, to give it a word. The coming and goingness, the insubstantiality of yourself, your thoughts, your ideas, your opinions. That can be so helpful, right? Even in the midst of when we're being triggered, if we know, okay, this response is happening, I'm in the middle of a storm, and I know that this is empty, it's going to settle. It's not intrinsically anything. So with that example of the um, cushions, to go back to that, So there I was having preferences, being very rigid and caught in the um, inner, my feelings about this, and the outer, this should be this way kind of situation. And um, uh, because of my relationship with my mind, um, a few things happened. One is I you know, changed things. Um, and two is when they got changed again, I had a reaction. But three, wait for it, is I was able to see all of that and let it go. Big deal, not a big deal. I don't know, you could see it either way. In this harmless example, it seems like not a big deal, but like how many times have you been twisted up in knots about something that was really not a big deal?
Then there's another thing, I think, about being a practitioner, which is that as we start to understand our mind and and learn about our mind, we can um, start to work with our mind in all different ways. So I'm going to give you an example based on my parable. Part of what was coming up for me in that moment of like, "Ah, this is all wrong, is this feeling that I've been working with of kind of of longing, of like looking for something. And um, within the context of my life here, sort of feeling like, where is this thing that I'm looking for? And I have um, talked, you know, in the past about um, patriarchy in our tradition and about, you know, bringing in the feminine and um, my own work around that in different ways. And so it felt like this was sort of another shade of that. Hard to exactly put into words, but part of what was in me was this chafing, this like, where is it, where is it, where is it? And um, doing some exploring, doing some investigating, actually even for this talk, Um, but precipitated largely by the Faith Mind poem and um, learning more about that as this kind of seminal Zen um, teaching, you know, happening early in the Zen tradition um, when when, uh, Indian Buddhism was in China and really being influenced by what was already in China, this ancient tradition of Taoism. And when I started to explore a little bit more about Taoism, there were some things in it that were so appealing. So appealing. Um, How present the feminine is. And let me just pause for one moment and make a clarifying statement, if you don't mind. Um, Using terms like feminine and masculine can be really uh, problematic because these are um, words that we associate in our mind with uh, gender. And I have definitely done that. And as a woman looking for the feminine, it feels like they're really linked. But um, I have been learning that that is a very essentialist view. So to think of feminine as having to do with women and masculine as having to do with men essentializes gender. It makes it into something solid. And gender actually isn't solid. It's a construct, and it can be very, very fluid. So it might actually be better for me to use the terms yin and yang, which I will borrow since I am talking about Taoism. Um, So this yin energy, which is uh, associated with um, darkness, with mystery, with stillness, 
with receptivity and wildness, with earth and earthiness, shadow. I feel like I've been looking for more of that. I've been looking for more of that. And um, within the tradition of Taoism, I found one place, one place only, um, but it's a, uh, in Thomas Cleary's um, translation of the, um, the book, The Immortal Sisters, which is a collection of um, writings by Taoist women. In his introduction to that, he actually says that, according to legend, Lao Tzu had a female teacher, like Bodhidharma. Maybe it was the same one. <laughs> and, um, and that this, this, uh, the presence of, of women, actual female beings, in, in Taoism um, was... Uh, there's records that show it was really there from the beginning, and in fact that in some cases women were thought to be more, um, have, a, have an affinity for certain practices. But this connection between Taoism and those Taoist sages, and I will, I will also just mention here that there is also a, um, uh, in, the, in the mythology of Taoism, there's one of the sages who's not identified as either male or female, non-binary. Um, well, and I, when I was thinking about that, I also thought, well, we could think of Prajnatara as non-binary, genderqueer. So if that works for you, please. I will get to that. That's one of my points. Um, but anyway, uh, that these, these women, for me, it's important to feel like I belong. It's important for all of us to feel that. So where do we find ourselves? What do we need in order to get that experience? And, you know, in order to sit down with ourselves and have faith in mind, there's kind of a very fundamental feeling of, like, this practice needs to be relevant to me. I need to be able to find myself in it, right? That's like, um, so, so to have, have, uh, have this presence of these um, Taoist sages. You know, Thomas Cleary also talked about how, like, because it was such a, uh, kind of part of the Taoist sages' um, MO, if you will, to sort of leave no trace, to um, kind of disappear with the mist. That, like, it may be that there were many more women um, who left no trace, who we, we, don't, we don't know about, um, also, because the history, of course, has been kept by men, it's really easy to, uh, we should assume, rather, we should assume, because the history was kept by men, we should assume that there were a lot of women and a lot of non-binary, genderqueer practitioners all over the place. Please, assume this. And I have, um, I just want to tell you that there's like one little tiny incident that really brought this home for me. Gokhan shared it with me. He was working on a talk um, that he gave a session or two ago, I'm not sure, 
where he used a sutra about the acrobat and the apprentice. Um, you take care of, we both take care of each other. I take care of myself and then we both take care of each other. Anyway, sorry, I didn't really clarify the main point of the teaching, that's not the point. There are two characters in the sutra. Um, one is the acrobat and the other is the acrobat's apprentice named Frying Pan. Amazing. <laughs> so the acrobat um, is, is uh, clearly male in the story and the apprentice, the acrobat doesn't have a name, but the apprentice does, a frying pan. And the, in the original language of the sutra, um, Pali or Sanskrit, I'm not sure which, um, frying pan's name has a feminine ending. Okay? Implying that frying pan was a girl, a young girl, having this exchange that went down in the sutras. There's a note in the uh, translation. Gokhan looked at two translations, and in one of them, there was a note at the bottom that said, yeah, uh, there was a feminine ending on the end of this name, but like, whatever, it's probably a boy. And then henceforth in the sutra, frying pan is referred to as he. Erased. Yeah, erased. Later, another um, uh, scholar monastic, Thanissaro Bhikkhu, came back and retranslated it and reinterpreted uh, frying pan's gender as female, and it appears they appear as she. So, um, to wrap this up, These forces, we're in the society that we're in. We've been conditioned in the way that we've been conditioned. And we can heal that. And we can like reintroduce things into our lives, our minds, our alaya, very deliberately. The Zen ancestors are important because they show us who walked this path before us. So we should know that others like us have practiced this since the beginning. And we should feel entitled to use our creative imagination to conjure beings who may be missing from the records or maybe untraditional representations of Kuan Yin, let's say, or Manjushri, or the Bodhisattvas and Dharma protectors. That we can bring that in and nourish ourselves at that deep level and then cultivate our faith and practice and know that when we sit down on the cushion, this Dharma is for us that we can realize ourselves, that we are Buddhas. Do not worry about accuracy, because let me tell you, this approach is a thousand times more accurate than any historical approach could ever be.
Native American activist and author Sherry Mitchell of the Wabanaki people writes, when conflict comes up, it is recurring, it is occurring because there are deeper wounds and layers needing to be healed. So we might have a generosity of mind toward ourselves when we see ourselves being reactive. When I come into the zendo and feel that like abrasive, aversive feeling to become curious, what's going on? What wound am I carrying that needs to be addressed? What can I do to take care of it? Now, this is a little secret. The other day when we did service, or was it this morning? I don't remember. I think it was this morning. It's all a blur. You know how that is. It's Friday. I was officiating, and I had the matriarch on the main bell. I had my Taoist sage attendant. And then coming up at that point, I had my female Dharma protectors, a.k.a. North and South ushers. and my fierce dakini holding it down in the corner. I like felt, I felt it. I was like, whoa, who says Zen is patriarchal? Not me. For more from the Mountains and Rivers Order, visit mountainrecord.org, where you'll find interviews, media reviews, essays, and the latest news from Zen Mountain Monastery, the Zen Center of New York City, and beyond. You'll also find a link to our new print journal, which is simply called Mountains and Rivers. The journal features articles from MRO teachers, stunning photography, and insightful conversations. The journal can be purchased from monasterystore.org. Thanks for listening.